If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Through canny political manoeuvrings and passionate affairs, the Berlins catapulted themselves from the sidelines of the Tudor court to the very apex of power. This dramatic story was told in a new BBC docudrama, The Berlins, A Scandalous Family. And our section editor, Rhiannon Davies, spoke to Owen Emerson, who appeared on the show, about the family's meteoric rise and crushing fall. So thank you so much for joining us today, Owen. And we're going to be discussing um, the show that you appeared on called The Boleyns, A Scandalous Family, which follows the fortunes of five of the Boleyns. So it's obviously Anne Boleyn, her father, Thomas, her brother, George, her sister, Mary, and her uncle, Thomas Howard. So for my first question, how does considering these other family members help us better understand Anne's own rise and fall? That's a really good question. And I'm glad you asked it. I think that by looking at the other family members, particularly her father, um, we can really recalibrate what we know about Anne. The old myth, as it were, really begun sort of in the 19th century that Anne was um, almost puppeteered um, into the king's bed, as was her sister Mary, for the advancement of the Boleyn family. So by studying Thomas's rise, we can actually liberate Anne and regain a sense of her own agency in the matter, which is a really important thing, I think. Um, Thomas wasn't this Machiavellian scheming character. Um, His family had risen over three generations um, to some very high positions. And by re-examining Thomas's own role and his own acumen and the the way he managed to climb up that ladder himself, we really can start to look at Anne's own power and Anne's own desire. And that's a really good thing, I think. 
And continuing to think about Thomas, you mentioned that he climbs up the pole. And this is something that um, I really enjoyed seeing in the show, seeing more about his rise. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that, how he does really advance his career as a courtier. Yeah, absolutely. So he um, is the son uh, of William Boleyn, and uh, he really begins his uh, career at court under Cardinal Wolsey. Um, And he has a really amazing career, actually. Um, I would say the Boleyn's fortunes aren't formed with Thomas. They begin early with Geoffrey Boleyn, who is his grandfather. Uh, He rose from a life really of petty crime to becoming the Lord Mayor of London. And the Boleyn's had this really uh, amazing way of securing uh, their own achievements by marrying into the nobility. Um, So... Uh, Thomas makes the third sort of successive marriage into the nobility by marrying Lady Elizabeth Howard, who was the daughter of one of the most powerful families in England. And it really is his acumen and connections that get him a seat at the table. His career doesn't begin at Henry VIII's court, but Henry VII's. Uh, He's part of the retinue uh, to escort um, uh, Margaret to Scotland. That's Henry VIII's sister. Um, And he's really liked by Henry VII. He's afforded a royal visit at Blickling Hall in 1498. This is someone who is well-liked by Henry VII and then well-liked by Henry VIII. He's an incredibly gifted courtier and diplomat. He's a humanist and people like him. They warm to him. He's able to charm important people and he's able most importantly, to secure very good deals for the king. Um, One of his earliest envoys came in 1512 uh, to the Netherlands, to the court of uh, Archduchess Margaret of Austria, uh, where he really flourishes. They both speak French and Latin. And it's her connection to Thomas and his ability to uh, gain her trust enables him to make this incredibly bold move and ask for an incredibly coveted position for Anne at her really cultured court. And she says yes. I mean, these are positions that are well out of Anne's league, really. But that's that's what Thomas is amazing at. And we rarely see that, particularly in popular culture. I mean, Dr. Lauren uh, Mackay has done an amazing job at rehabilitating Thomas's character. So it's lovely to see it on screen in this series. And I'd definitely like to find out a bit more about Anne's time at the European courts. But before we delve into that, you mentioned a name in your previous answer, and that name is Howard. And I'd really like to hear a little bit more about um, the uncle, so Thomas Howard. And why is he such an unpleasant man? Yes, um, my colleague and friend Gareth Russell calls him one of the most unpleasant individuals uh, at Henry's court. And I quite agree. There is very little to like about him. He is uh, selfish, uh, capricious, and he sort of uh, almost exemplifies everything that uh, Thomas Boleyn has been characterised quite unjustly, if you ask me. So, yes, I mean, we can see the tension with the Boleyns, particularly with Anne Boleyn, Thomas's daughter. They do not get along. Um, And I think there is a tension here between 
uh, a rising nobility with the Boleyns and an established one with with Thomas Howard. They are part of the most important family uh, in the kingdom. He's just also really unpleasant. I mean, you only have to look at his wife's correspondence to understand what an unpleasant man this is. Um, So I think both politically and personally, this is a rather repugnant individual. So I'm I'm actually really glad to see that on screen as well. But yes, Anne and Thomas do not get on. Um, Thomas Howard, that is. Um, They may be uncle and niece, but it is not a good relationship. And you know, when when Anne falls, it's Thomas Howard that arrests her and huts three times. It's a really grim scene, actually. This is her worst moment, and he is relishing it. He also sits in judgment on her. He is the judge. And although we're told that tears were streaming down his eyes when he pronounced the verdict against her, I do have to wonder if they were particularly sincere or more to do with what it meant for his future as well. Mm, Definitely. Well, we'll come on to her fall later and the role that he plays within it. Um, But for now, if we can just circle back and think about Anne's time in the European court. So she first goes to Margaret of Austria's court and then later she goes to the French court as a lady-in-waiting to Mary Tudor. Could you tell us a bit about her time at these courts and how they really shape her into the woman that she becomes? Yeah, absolutely. As I said, it's really Thomas's skill, her father, Thomas Boleyn, his skill that's able uh, to ensure that she gets these really coveted places. Firstly, at uh, Margaret of Austria's court in Mechlin in the Low Countries or, or Netherlands, and then serving firstly Queen Mary, uh, that's Henry VIII's sister, and then Queen Claude um, when uh, uh, King Louis XII dies suddenly. Um, and these are really highly cultured and progressive courts. They are full of great libraries, great minds, and great opportunities. And she's not only there to learn, but also to be of use to her father by creating connections and opportunities for him. So it's a, a reciprocal benefit. But it's really at these courts that she soaks up the Renaissance style. She becomes fluent in the language of love, French. And she emerges from the experience as almost the epitome of the style that King Henry VIII is trying to engender at his own court. She's almost the walking embodiment of it. And it really begins to captivate him when she transfers later to the English court. I think she is irrevocably changed by these opportunities. And she comes out a very different person. She is fiercely intelligent. I think that's developed at these courts. And I think she's also perhaps more intelligent than Henry. Um, She could, if she wanted, outstrip him. And I think it's this intellectual imbalance that leads to what the late Professor Eric Ives characterised as the sunshine and storms of their relationship. And I think that's underpinned by the fact that she's authentically almost French. Uh, She exudes uh, all the qualities of that court. And she's just smarter than him. Um, And I think... Um, that's really useful to Henry upon occasions, but really irritates him as well. 
Of course, I can imagine it would. Um, And thinking about the fact that Anne gets sent to these courts, because of course she is not Thomas Boleyn's only daughter, there's also Mary. Why do you think it was that he chose for Anne to go and Mary to stay behind? It's really difficult to tell, but there are clues. There is a really touching letter that Anne sends to Thomas. It's a really remarkable survival, actually. It's our uh, it's our earliest piece of evidence of Anne in her own words. And in it, she is thanking him for the opportunity he has given her. And she speaks very eloquently of her desire to please him and also of her love for him. I think they are incredibly close. With Mary there always seems to be something of a tension between them. For example, later when Mary is married to William Carey, a courtier, uh, and he dies tragically in 1528, there is a reluctance, shall we say, on Thomas's part to help her financially. Later on again, when she marries in a typically Boleyn fashion, without permission, without royal permission, um, she's banished. They cut her off. And you always get a sense that Mary is something of the second best character. I don't think she lets this prohibit her, however. As I say, she is a Boleyn. She is going to carve out her own existence uh, where possible. So I think it's um, a sort of reciprocity between Thomas and his daughter Anne that means that she is the, the chosen one, if you want to put it like that. That's why she gets the opportunity. I find it really interesting that you say Mary is seen as the other sister, the other Boleyn, because obviously she is the one that first catches the eye of Henry, isn't she? And she has the first affair. How did she feel about having to go into the king's bed? And how did her family feel? Are they happy for her? Are they ashamed as she's a married woman at the time? This is such a good question. And my goodness, so much has been made of this. Mary is a gift to the novelist and a nightmare to the historian because we have so little of her. We have one letter in her own words, uh, and it's a glorious letter. I love it. But in terms of the relationship between Henry and her, we have so little evidence to back it up. It's quite extraordinary, actually. Um, We have a dispensation that Henry sends um, to the Pope uh, in preparation for his proposed marriage to Anne Boleyn, which uh, essentially uh, asks for forgiveness for illicit acts beforehand. This has been um, taken to mean a relationship with her sister, but it's not conclusive evidence. And then we have another piece of evidence, which is a conversation that uh, Henry had where he was asked if he had slept with both Mary Boleyn and her mother, Elizabeth Boleyn Nee Howard, to which he replied, never the mother. So I think from that we can extrapolate that they did have sex, but how much of a relationship there was is really open to interpretation. And this is where I think the historian has to stop, where the novelist can run wild. Um, There are the questions of grants that are gifted to William Carey, her husband, but they aren't that incongruent with other grants that are gifted to people that we have no knowledge that he slept with their wives. So, again, I, I think a lot is made of these very, very scant pieces of evidence. If there was a relationship and she was a mistress, 
it didn't bring much to the table. There was a finite amount uh, that you could do as a mistress. And mistresses tended to be married off fairly well. And that was the end of their advantage. If she did have a relationship with Henry, I think Anne would have learned the lesson because she refuses all of those things and asks instead for a crown. But we do know that Thomas's Thomas, that is her father, Thomas Boleyn, isn't happy with the relationship between Anne and Henry, which is quite surprising. He's often seen as the architect of this relationship, but we have good evidence from Eustace Chapuis that that's not the case. So I don't think the Boleyns would have been happy in either instances, to be honest. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of respectability in that position. Um, so yes, if it did happen, it's questionable whether the Boleyns would have been happy about it at all. And then, of course, Anne does draw Henry's eye and she becomes the object of his affections. And something I was wondering about, are obviously, there are a lot of rewards that can come with this, but also the risks, especially as she does not want to just be a mistress. She wants the crown. So what kind of pitfalls did this ambition hold for her and for her family? What could they expect to happen if Henry decided he was tired of her and he found a new woman? This is, I think, a really good question and helps to explain the rhythm of what actually transpired in those seven years that it took to uh, secure an annulment from Henry's first marriage. I mean, Henry actually shifts heaven and earth to marry this woman. It's quite an extraordinary feat. This is a real risk for the Boleyns. They have secured so much through acumen, through their skill, through their connections. And this is really almost uncharted waters that they are now going down. And it appears that Anne is the one pulling the oars. So it must have been incredibly disconcerting, um, particularly in a patriarchal society for the male members of the family. And there were real risks at stake here. Catherine has banked the most extraordinary amount of love and sympathy over her reign. She is beloved. She really is. And what Anne is attempting to do here, by asking not to be an official mistress, but asking for Catherine's crown, is risking pitting well over half the country against her, including members of her own family. And she has none of the protection that Catherine does. Catherine is protected by the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, she derives, she comes from Spain. Um, Henry can't really touch her physically, if that makes sense, in terms of what her outcome is going to be at the end of this. But Anne has none of that protection. She only has the protection of her family. And her family at this point aren't particularly powerful um, in, the, in the grand scheme of things. So there's a huge amount to lose here, but Anne is ready to throw the dice and and gamble it all, essentially. So we've discussed some of the risks, but thinking as well about the rewards, not for Anne herself, but for her brother, George, who is a courtier, just like his father. What did the attentions that Anne was getting from the king, the favour she was carrying from Henry, what impact did that have on George's career? That's a really fascinating question as well. And I think that George, let's say Anne wasn't in the equation, let's say Henry wasn't after her, would have had a glittering career at court. 
He had an amazing intellect. He was a gifted poet. I think he was really cut from the same cloth as Anne. And they had a huge amount of reciprocity uh, amongst one another. But I do think his career was hampered somewhat by living in her shadows. Um, He had the making of a career diplomat, just like his father. And I think he was and could have been as gifted as him. He was appointed a gentleman of the Privy Chamber in 1525, just as his father had been, and is favoured as the Royal Cupbearer in 1526. And then he moves on to the more prestigious position of being an Esquire of the Body and also Master of the King's Buckhounds in 1528. And no one loves hunting more than Henry VIII. So looking after the King's dogs is a really important position uh, in, in terms of personability and having access to the king. Um, I think he does have some really shining moments. Perhaps the best uh, moment of his career um, was his role in uh, persuading convocation of the scriptural cases for the king's supremacy um, in 1531. And he does an incredible job. I mean, this is a really eloquent man uh, facing the clergy and convincing them that there was a a case um, so far as the law allowed for the king's supremacy. He has embassies abroad during Anne's reign, but of course is cut down in his prime. It's a huge tragedy. This is uh, a man who's completely innocent of everything that he's charged with, and we never get to see his full potential. And I think actually... Maybe he's sacrificing some of that potential because of who his sister is and to aid her. I mean, at some points, he's literally the royal message uh, bearer. He is writing letters between court and Hever Castle, where Anne is retreating to get away from the scandal at court. Um, So, yes, he's very much put in um, the subservient position in terms of as I said, uh, uh, being a patriarchal society, he is happy to play that role for his sister. And I think that speaks hugely about their amazing relationship. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Anything that happened in the courtroom when Anne was tried or when George was tried would have changed anyone's minds. When the King of England allows his wife to stand a public trial, there is no doubt in the jury's mind as to what they are to deliver. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So this is something that you touched on in your previous answer, but of course, Anne isn't content to be Henry's mistress, and he does pursue an annulment of his marriage with Catherine of Aragon so that he can marry Anne. And something that I was really interested in is the role that Cardinal Wolsey plays in this. So he seems the man to speak to the Pope and sort out this annulment. But things don't really go to plan. It's quite a slow process with Wolsey in charge. And how does Anne feel about him? Is she suspicious of the amount of time it takes? Yes, that's a really um, interesting area. Of course, Thomas Boleyn, Anne's father, had a really great relationship with Cardinal Wolsey. It spanned over two decades, and it's overwhelmingly a positive relationship. In fact, Thomas owes a huge amount of his success to Wolsey's trust in him. This relationship is something that's explored brilliantly by the historian Dr Lauren Mackay, who's really shattered this notion that that all of the Boleyns were determined to bring Wolsey down. It's far more complicated and nuanced than that. Um, It really is through Wolsey's patronage that the Boleyns rise, certainly Thomas, and he's one of Wolsey's right-hand men. He's employed on important missions through Wolsey and on behalf of the king. The problem with uh, Wolsey wasn't Thomas, because they had a very cordial relationship. It was Anne. Unfortunately, Wolsey had broken off a potential match that Anne had been aiming for with Henry Percy, who is the future Duke of Northumberland. And Anne held a massive grudge here. Uh, She was renowned for doing so, unfortunately. And she didn't have the working relationship with Wolsey that her father had. And it must have been really difficult, actually, for Thomas Boleyn when Anne begins to dominate at court and begins to dominate Wolsey too. She establishes herself very quickly as the second ear, almost, that Wolsey needs to please. And I think it must have been a really humbling experience for Wolsey. He had held uh, the position of the king's right-hand man for quite some time. And he'd never failed the king. And here he is faced with this almost impossible task and having also to please someone else for the first time. It must have been very disturbing for him. And there is a particularly cordial and perhaps too cordial a letter that survives from Anne to Wolsey from 1528. And I think it tells us a huge amount, actually. In it, she's essentially asking for an update on the progress with the annulment from the legate. And at the bottom of the page is something quite remarkable. Anne 
made Henry, who famously was not at all fond of writing letters, write a postscript at the end. Indeed, Henry actually writes that Anne would not cease until he did so. And I think this intervention on Anne's part tells us everything about her position with Wolsey. He is, in a way, her only option to securing what both the king and Anne want. But she is increasingly suspicious of his willingness to do so, I believe. And she here, by asking the king to do this, is flexing the biggest possible muscle that she can lay her hands on, the king's hand. And it's quite a remarkable document. It really shows Anne's power at that moment. And it must have been quite frightening for for Wolsey, to be honest. And of course, things don't go well. Wolsey isn't able to deliver. And in many ways, it's Anne that does deliver. She takes it upon herself to deliver what Wolsey can't. Wolsey, of course, is uh, traditionally Catholic. Anne is something of a radical. She is an evangelical. Uh, She has reformist views. And she is prepared to take it upon herself to deliver a then-deemed heretical text, a text that Wolsey has burnt people for possessing, into the king's hand, a work by William Tyndale, which tells the king that by scripture, there is no one second to God but him. There is no need for a pope. And it's that idea, it's that seed that she plants, which solves the matter. So she wins, and of course he falls. And there is this really chilling moment which is recreated actually in the in the docudrama where Anne arrives at the cardinal's York place really to measure up his property because it's hers now and there's something really cold about her doing so actually I have huge admiration for this woman but she could be incredibly cold at times and it is almost in that moment like she is walking on his grave And you mentioned that Anne has reformist views, but I was wondering what kind of religious views do other members of the Boleyn family have? That's a really good question. And I think we often see the Boleyns quite simply as very radical, almost Lutheran. Um, Shapwee once said that Anne was more Lutheran than Luther, which is over-egging it a bit, actually. As with all things Boleyn, it's just more complex than that. As with Thomas Boleyn, he appears to have been far more traditional individual with regards to religion. He's far more conventionally pious than his more radical children. I think it's possible that Anne actually picks up uh, this radical zeal in France. Um, She favours non-schismatic reform, that is, um, reform from within, not breaking away from a church, but getting back to scripture, she's better identified as an evangelical than Lutheran. She believes, for example, in reading the scripture in the vernacular, in their own language. She reads the works of William Tyndale. And I think we have to understand that reform is very much in its infancy at this time. But there is a real sense that the Boleyn siblings are reading widely and making up their own minds. There's an individuality to their faith. 
And I think we also have to acknowledge that Anne retains many conventionally Catholic practices. George, however, is perhaps the most radical Boleyn of them all, and the two siblings really use each other almost as sounding boards for their belief. And George spends a considerable amount of time and effort translating texts for Anne. They are incredibly personal and intimate objects with personal dedications that he has written for her, saying things like, uh, you have all the jewels in the world, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, but what I can give you is this. And these are so intimate, they're so personal, and they tell us everything about the complexity of these individuals' faith. They wanted to read widely, but crucially make up their own minds. These are free-thinking people. And actually, I think there are occasions where George is taking it too far for Anne. She does reject some of his ideas. Um, And I love this dynamic between them. I think it's really intriguing. And you do get to see that in this documentary. That's something that is so often missed out of their story. Just how close these two were. And it was that closeness that made what happened to them later horrific. Mm -hmm. And we'll be coming on to that in just a moment. But before we delve into their fall, I thought it would be nice to celebrate Anne at the height of her power. So I was thinking we could talk about her coronation, which her parents watch. How do you think Thomas Boleyn and Elizabeth feel when they are watching their daughter be crowned Queen of England? I think it must have been the best day of their lives, if I'm honest. I don't think any of them thought that it was possible at the beginning even desirable. But when it did happen, and of course, Anne is pregnant at this time as well, she is full of possibility. And it looks like things are going to go the way that she envisaged them to happen. Her coronation was just as spectacular as Henry and Catherine's had been. Henry and Catherine had been crowned together. But so much effort was put into Anne's coronation. It was almost a full monarchical coronation. Anne, of course, is a queen consort. It spans over days. She has the royal apartments refurbished for her uh, at the Tower of London, which is traditionally where the monarch stays before their coronation. Uh, She even uh, is afforded new capillas on the top of the White Tower, the Tower of London, these beautiful onion domes which still exist. They were put there for Anne's coronation. She has a remarkable procession through the streets of London, um, and uh, many of the tableaus were designed by Hans Holbein. This was a stunning, lavish affair. It must have cost a fortune. And in the coronation ceremony, Quite remarkably and uniquely, the crown of St. Edward is placed on her head. This is a crown only reserved for crowning the monarch. And it is afforded to Anne as consort, just to solidify her validity as Henry's queen consort. Perhaps even as a preemptive crowning for the child that is in her belly. It must have been astonishing. It really must have been amazing. Um, And they must have been full of pride, but also full of apprehension for what was going to come. Was she going to deliver that son? What was going to happen to her in terms of the wider court? What was her queenship going to look like? 
was she going to be able to keep her temper um, and not irritate the queen quite as much as she was able to? There were a lot of ifs there. And what happened next, of course, determined what happened finally. And before we come on to the final fate of Anne and George, what role does Thomas Cromwell play in her fall from grace? This area has been explored so extensively. There are so many intriguing theories. And I think the first thing to um, really make note of is that there was no good relationship between Anne and Cromwell. In fiction, and even in some historical texts, they are characterised as um, almost partners in crime. And they are very much interconnected. Thomas Cromwell plays a significant role in Anne's rise. But there's a myth that they were ever close. And actually, Thomas Cromwell's rise and his career path was a result of Henry and not the Boleyns. He's a key player in the obtainment of the annulment, as was Anne, but that was on the king's behalf. He's not doing this for the Boleyns. And this is an increasingly frustrated relationship, not least over the direction of the dissolution of the monasteries. Cromwell knows that Henry would rather the wealth from the monasteries lined his coffers. And he also knows that the reluctant nobles in this process, could be placated with those spoils too. But Anne appears to have favoured the wealth from the monasteries going to charitable causes akin to that of which the institutions used to previously function for, such as education. And this schism, I think, really proves to be deadly for Anne. She, at this point, allows her almoner uh, to preach a sermon which is seen very much as a threat uh, against Cromwell. Uh, She tells the story of Esther, uh, who, of course, was a a Jewish queen uh, who was uh, almost thwarted by the king's right-hand man, Haman, and who triumphed over him. Haman was hanged. And this really is Anne firing a warning shot across Cromwell's bowels. She even states that she will have his head. Cromwell doesn't afford Anne such a warning by return. He aims straight for her head and he has it. But of course, none of this would have been possible had Henry not wanted it. He wanted out of the marriage. Henry commissioned that to get him out and Cromwell was the architect of what happened next. And what underpinned Anne's death, I believe, was the threat that Cromwell could die at any moment. And it's not just a threat from Anne, it's a threat from Henry too. Because when Cromwell brings these spurious charges to Henry, he essentially tells Cromwell, if you can prove it, fine. If you can't, you're going to die. This man is doubly threatened. So... Understanding that really helps to understand quite how quickly and finally Anne's end came. But we can't just blame Cromwell. It was all Henry's doing too. 
And I feel bad that my next question is not directed at Henry, but it's not. Henry's got off very lightly from me. Um, My next question is actually about Thomas Howard. Obviously, you've touched on this earlier in the episode, but I'd really like to circle back to it because I found it so astonishing that her own uncle arrested her and oversaw the trial of her and her brother. Can you tell us why he came down on the side of Henry and Cromwell and why that familial tie proved so breakable to him? In a way, he was just doing his job. He is the Lord High Steward, and therefore it is his responsibility to arrest a person of high personage. It is his responsibility to sit upon judgment on them. But contrary to popular belief, Thomas Boleyn, who should have sat in trial on his children, didn't. Uh, This is often a myth that is repeated. Um, He did sit in judgment of the men accused with her and horrifically, by proxy, therefore condemned Anne and George, because if they were guilty, the Queen must have been guilty. So someone spared him the, the horror of sitting on judgment upon his children. Could the same have happened for the uncle? I don't think the will was there. I don't think he minded, to be honest, that Anne was falling. They were not friends. They, there was no friendship there between them. Uh, they had a really awful relationship. Of course, it, it, things must have been uncertain for him. What was going to happen next? What was the next queenship going to be like? What was that um, bear pit going to be like without the Berlins at the centre? But yes, I, I don't think it's as easy as thinking uh, about familial relationships. It is actually Thomas's, uh, Thomas Howard's duty to do what he does. He just seems to relish in it, um, which is really quite grim, if I'm honest. And thinking now about George's trial, there was a part in the docudrama which I found so interesting, which is about his trial and when he is given accusations that he is forbidden to read aloud, but does so anyway. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, George performs so amiably in his trial that Chapuis notes that the spectators are assured that he is going to be acquitted. Um, Unlike Anne, who is by default, condemned by the condemnation of her supposed lovers. George hadn't been. And he is fighting for his life in that court. He's also fighting uh, for the reputation of his sister. What he is accused of, incest, must have been so offensive to George and Anne. They They were as thick as thieves. And this is probably George's finest hour. He defends himself amiably, as I suggested. And they really are actually betting on him getting off. It's it's incredible. But he does something, again, which I think is typically Berlin in a way. He is handed a piece of paper, which there probably is a grain of truth in what is written on that parchment. Um essentially what it said was that the king was not skilled in pleasing a woman. And he is told not to read this aloud, and he does. 
It's a typically Berlin thing to do. I actually think there's an element of him not wanting to go down with things being hidden. He doesn't want to be condemned on the basis of something a court hasn't heard, uh, that the people in the court haven't heard. But of course, what it does is puts in his own mouth the fact that he's been discussing carnal relations with his sister, not between them, between Henry and Anne, but it opens up the possibility in people's minds that this is a closer relationship than it should necessarily have been. Having said all that, I don't think anything that happened in the courtroom when Anne was tried or when George was tried would have changed anyone's minds. When the King of England allows his wife to stand a public trial, there is no doubt in the jury's mind as to what they are to deliver. All of the people sitting on that, the ennobled jurors, owe their largesse to the king. Everything has Henry's fingerprints on it. They can be in no doubt whatsoever what their job is to do on that day. And what I find most extraordinary about the performance of both Anne and George, who both fight for their lives, is that unlike our uh, judicial system, they really don't know what the charges are until they are welcomed into that courtroom. They have no one to defend them. They have no notes. They have no access to anything. They don't know what on dates they're supposed to have been charged. And yet they fight. And they do so so well that everyone thinks they're going to get off. And do you know what? Uh, until that, until those performances, which would have been remarkable to watch, people might have thought they were guilty because one of the accused men, Mark Smeaton, had confessed. When there is a confession, there's much more likely going to be people believing in the accusations. But these performances are so brilliant that no one comes out of that courtroom in any doubt who's watched it that these people are innocent. You can see this in a poem by Lancelot de Carle, which the poem starts very much with the idea that these two are guilty, and it's the turning point of the trial that convinces everyone that they're not. It's quite remarkable. And sadly, of course, both of them are executed, but their parents don't come to witness their deaths. Why do you think they stay away? It's a really good question. And I think in terms of uh, the human element, it would have been an utterly horrific thing to witness. We know that family members are present um, and we know that high personages who uh, were responsible for their downfall witnessed it. Cromwell was there. Uh, the king's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, is there. And much judgment actually has been made on Thomas for seemingly not doing anything to save his children. But I always have to ask people, what, what on earth do you think he could have done? I mean, the person bringing them down is the king. There is no one higher. And moreover, he is now the highest person in the land because he is head of the church. Um, we don't sort of condemn other people for not saving their family members. For, for some reason, Thomas is uniquely blamed for not doing something to save them. He does all that he can. He has other family members 
that he's responsible for. He has a retinue of staff that he is responsible for. And he retires to Heaver. He pulls the drawbridge up, makes himself small and inconspicuous. And he hopes to survive those destructive, thunderous winds that rumble around the throne and snatch his children away. It's an appalling situation. Um, I don't think I would have wanted to witness my children's end. I don't blame him at all for that. Um, I have to say that they are so composed and so um, remarkable on their on the scaffolds that they are forced to stand upon before they die. I have so much admiration for the what they appear to have been like at that moment. Um, every, every report suggests that they are full of courage and comply. But what they don't do is admit their guilt. They admit to guilt, but not the guilt that they are charged with. And that's a really defiant thing to do in that day and age. You were, by convention, supposed to um, admit your guilt at the point of death, lest you uh, be eternally condemned. Thomas isn't disgraced, as is so often depicted, but he was a broken man. And his continued correspondence with Thomas Cromwell, the architect of the children's downfall, we can see a marked difference in tone and temperament in that correspondence. He does continue at court. He has a career. He has to get on with it, um, which must have been intolerable, particularly at events such as the christening of Edward, the son of the Queen who has supplanted his daughter, Anne. And it must have been a really bittersweet um, moment because he probably glimpsed his granddaughter, Elizabeth, at that event. It's probably the last time he saw her. And he must have had knowledge then that she would likely never be queen. There was no hope for Elizabeth at that point. And it must have been devastating for him to see her on that occasion. He, he is a, a king's man, so he's prepared to raise troops for the king to quell the rebellion, the, the pilgrimage of grace, although his men don't actually fight, but he is prepared to, to put the men up. And I think he dies a broken man. And I think his wife died in that way too. She dies in 1538 and he dies at Hever Castle, their gorgeous little family home in 1539. It's um, a really rather sad end to the Berlin saga. But, of course, it was not the end of the story because that little girl that Thomas saw at the christening, his granddaughter, emerges from the ashes of the Berlin's destruction and I think provides the perfect encore that everyone wanted, certainly from our modern perspective, to their dramatic story. She reigns for 45 years. She has an entire era named after her. And it just feels like justice for what happened to her maternal family. She rarely speaks of her mother, um, but she does surround herself by her Berlin relatives and former Berlin supporters too. And she speaks not of her mother in words, but in images. She adopts the personal emblems of Anne for her own uh, iconography, and her courtiers fill their long galleries with portraits of Anne, 
pretty much all of the portraiture of Anne that we have comes from Elizabeth's reign. And I think, you know, she's popularly rem- remembered as the lion's cub, but she was heart and stomach of Boleyn. She was her mother's daughter. That was Owen Emerson. You can watch the final episode of The Boleyns, A Scandalous Family on BBC Two tonight. The three-part series is also now available to stream on BBC iPlayer. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on the history of the Paralympics. <laughs>